There's a uh, theme that's pervasive in all of the world's literature. It's that of a, of a king who lays aside all of his royal uh, trappings, his garb as a king, all of the uh, regal demonstrations of his power, and he goes to town and he walks among the people of that village as a commoner, more often than not as a peasant. And that story has found its way into folk literature in a variety of different ways because I think what that story represents is a yearning that all of us have for a sovereign who understands us. We know we need a Lord, but we're not sure we need one who's aloof and distant and way off yonder where we have no contact with him. What we need is someone who understands us the way we are and who can give us the kind of control that will enable us to change and be what we know we ought to be. Now, I think that's what we have in the story in front of us this morning in Matthew 21. It's the reality behind all of those other stories, those other myths or folk stories. It's the reality behind the yearning that we have for a Lord who understands us. Let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 21, Matthew 21. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the, mountain, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You'll recognize this passage as uh, what we call the triumphal entry, although there's a note of irony even in that title because this entry is anything but triumphant. All you have to picture in your mind is a little uh, donkey colt with flop ears and a long sad face and Jesus riding on this donkey with his feet trailing in the dust, and you get some idea of what really happened. People of that day, sovereigns of that day, normally rode on a stallion, or they rode in a chariot drawn by stallions. That began with Solomon in Israel's uh, uh, history, and uh, that was the pattern in those days. Alexander had his horse, Bucephalus, and other great world conquerors had their uh, uh, majestic stately animals. The Lord had his little donkey. All of this occurred during the feast of the Passover. This was the great annual feast in Israel to which every male uh, Jew within 20, year, 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to come. And as a matter of fact, they came from all over the Roman Empire, not only Jews but uh, Gentiles as well. There was a census taken shortly after this, uh, this time in which it was noted that uh, about a quarter of a million lambs were slain at the feast of the Passover. And assuming a 10 to 1 ratio, that there were normally 10 Israelites for every lamb, there must have been close to 2.5 million people crowded into the little city of Jerusalem, standing on the street corners, talking, bivouacked out in the fields, all over the place, people. And it was into this scene that the Lord came riding this little donkey. He sent his disciples, so, uh, the Lord was residing in Bethany, and he sent his disciples over the hill, uh, the Mount of Olives, to Bethphage, to another little village, right on the top of the hill, and there they were to find a donkey and a little colt. Apparently the Lord had made preparation beforehand. He had talked to this disciple, and the arrangements were made. The disciples now go to pick up the Lord's transportation for his pilgrimage into Jerusalem. 
All of this, Matthew says, is because it was predicted. The prophet Zechariah, one of the last of the great post-exilic prophets, predicted that Messiah would come, their king would come, mounted on a colt, gentle, as he puts it, mounted upon a donkey. The uh, term that's translated gentle here would be better translated unassuming, meek. He wasn't putting on airs. He wasn't uh, forcing anyone's hand. He came in meekness and in gentleness and in quietness. And that somehow, I think, says something to us. That's the kind of Lord we need. Uh, A sovereign sitting on a stallion is not too approachable. A king standing in the back of a chariot with his entourage around him, uh, he's threatening. But not this Lord who comes through the streets of Jerusalem dragging his feet in the dust on a little tiny donkey. I can't think of anything more humiliating than riding on a little donkey. I think our Sunday school, the images that we picked up in in Sunday school somehow obscure the deep humiliation of this event. I understand because once upon a time, I transported a donkey colt from Dallas, Texas to Tulsa, Oklahoma in the back seat of a 1948 Mercury convertible. I (laughs) honestly did. And ever since then, I have known exactly what the Lord went through. I was in high school at the time, and my father bought a donkey for my nephew, his grandson, who wanted a horse. And my father thought he was too young to have a horse, so he bought this little donkey colt. And it was just a little bit bigger than a, sh- than a, uh, than a uh, dog, really. It was about so tall and had these long, floppy ears and this sad face. And uh, it was too small to put in the trailer. My father thought he would be hurt, so he took the back seat out of my car, and he built a wooden platform. And the, the theory was the donkey would lie down in the back seat, but he didn't. The crazy beast sat up the whole way. He sat on his hindquarters and put his forelegs in the, in the, on the floor, and he looked for all the world like a backseat passenger. And, you would, and I was in high school at the time and very image conscious, and everywhere we went, people would drive by and they would bray out the windows at us, you know. And the culmination of it all, you know, this was all the way from Dallas to Tulsa, and the culmination of it was when we pulled into a filling station and the attendant came out and asked the donkey if he wanted to fill up. (laughs) It was, without doubt, the most embarrassing time of my life. But out of this, I gained a real appreciation for our Lord. I think that's something of what he felt. He was not as image conscious as I, of course, but it was that sort of deep humiliation that was involved in riding this little tiny beast through the, uh, through the streets of, of Jerusalem. Now, the people understood what was happening. They knew the prophecy in Zechariah, and uh, they responded. We're told in verse 6 that the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. This is the normal treatment afforded a conquering general. It's the sort of thing they had done for King Ahab in the Old Testament at, a, uh, at another time. And uh, it's the sort of thing that they did for Cyrus and Alexander and other, other conquering heroes. They followed the triumphal entry of these leaders, and they uh, put palm leaves on the, on the uh, cobblestones, and uh, they put uh, palm leaves, drew palm leaves in Jesus' path. And the multitude going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, 
this, you'll recognize, is a, is a quotation from the Psalms, from Psalm 118. And they simply quote one of the pilgrim psalms, which normally were addressed to the pilgrims as they entered the city of Jerusalem. Hosanna, he says, to, uh, to those who come in the name of the Lord. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The Lord <clears throat> came down the west side of the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, up the east side of Mount Zion, and through one of the gates on the east side of the city into the temple area. And as he did, the people gathered and they shouted, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is, uh, is not a translation of the uh, Hebrew term that's used in the Psalms. It's a transliteration. The term actually means save, save, please, please save us is the idea. It's a word of entreaty. The na on the end is, a, is what's called a particle of entreaty. It means please, please save us. And this is what they were saying. This is the king we've been looking for. Not only the one who will free us from the tyranny of Rome, but the one who will free us from the tyranny of, our, of the memories of our past sin, our guilt, our inability to cope with life, our fractured lives and relationships, our broken marriages. Help, help, they say. Please save us. This is the point. And they address all of this to the king who comes into the city riding on a little donkey. How incongruous. But you see, this is the one who can save. And they know it. They understand this. Now, we're living in a world very similar, really, to the, to the times in which Jesus lived and ministered. I would say the world today is a very cold, loveless, lifeless place. Uh, Jesus said it would be. He predicted that because of the wickedness of many, the love of many would grow cold. And that's what's happening. This is seen in a number of ways, the high divorce rate. And underlying the divorce rate, really, the homes that are, that are about to, to fall apart, the lack of love and real sensitivity and understanding that we experience all around us. That's the world we're in. And people could cry out just as reasonably today, Save us! Lord, save us! Where is somebody who can save us? And it's this unassuming one who does not come on strong, who does not give us the bum's rush, who does not pressure us, who doesn't throw his weight around. He just comes and makes himself available. And that's what he was doing in the city of Jerusalem. I'm here to help. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the only source of help in the world. Um, I was um, down at the courthouse a few weeks ago talking to a friend of mine. And uh, I had invited him to uh, our Wednesday morning men's study. He's not yet a Christian, but I thought he might appreciate the warmth and the love that those men dem demonstrate for each other there. And in the course of our conversation, I was just explaining that uh, most men, after a, after a while in their life, just kind of run out of gas. They discover that money and power and glory and influence and sex really goes no, leads nowhere, that having pursued all of these things after a while, we just run out of any real motivation for living. And that's when people realize that they need a Lord. And he looked up and he said, you've been reading my book. And I said, no, not really. I said, I'm just a man and I understand. And, and I know that's where m most of us uh, end up. You know, we have everything. We don't want anything we want, anything we have. And we start looking around for someone who can save us. And his response was, well, I'm there. I'm there. Now, you would never imagine by looking at him that that's the way he felt because he seemed to have everything. And often we're intimidated, I think, by people out in secular society because they seem to have it all together. But down inside, they're really, really hurting. 
And that's what the Lord saw. And he came to save. He came to, to heal their hurts. That's why he appeared on, on this day in Jerusalem with all these Jews, two and a half million of them, gathered in Jerusalem, many of them hurting, looking for help. And he came to give the help that they were looking for. Now, you would think that this was his moment of glory. It would seem that's so. This was the time when he made his uh, proclamation of kingship, and he, it would seem that he was acclaimed as king at this point, but the Lord knew that something was amiss. Luke tells us that on his way down through the Kidron Valley, before he came into the city, he broke down and started to cry. He wept. And he said, oh, that, that today you knew the things that make for peace, that today you knew the day of your visitation. The, the day that he's referring to is the day that Daniel predicted back uh, 600 years before when he said that uh, after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which was in 445 B.C., there would be 483 years, and then the king would come. And this was the day, right down to the day, that uh, Daniel had predicted. And Jesus came in response to that prediction on that particular day to give help, but he knew that they wouldn't listen. There was a reason why uh, they wouldn't respond and he wouldn't be able to heal their hurts. And that's described for us in the verses that follow. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, the word that, that Matthew uses for the temple here is the term for the temple complex. It's not the word that's normally used for the inner sanctuary, the temple proper. It refers to all the buildings that, uh, in which the smaller temple uh, structure was enclosed. The uh, temple of this day was the one which Herod had embellished. It was built by the returning exiles. And then Herod expended an enormous amount of money to, to build it, uh, lavished a lot of uh, care and expense on making this a magnificent structure. As a matter of fact, the temple at this time is spoken of by pagan writers as, uh, as an architectural wonder. Uh, it's very large, expansive sort of thing. And uh, there were a series of concentric courts. In the center was the temple itself, and then there were courts that surrounded it. The outside temple was the court of the Gentiles. And uh, anyone from all over the world, Jew or Gentile, could gather in that court. The next court was the court of the women. Uh, Jewish women could go that far and no further. Gentiles were excluded from the court of women, but Jewish men and women could gather to worship in the court of women. And within that court was the court of the Israelite, which was uh, used exclusively by Jewish men. Women couldn't go into that court. And then the third or the fourth court was the court of the priests, which in which only the clergy could worship. Gives you some idea of uh, of their outlook on on life and and their class consciousness, but that's just the way things were in those days. And it's into this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, that uh, Jesus encountered the money changers. Their uh, non-Jews from all of the Roman Empire were gathering to worship, and they were exchanging their foreign currency for coinage that could be used in the temple. They had a special half-shekel that had to be paid for the temple tax. Any any man or woman worshiping in the temple had to use this special coin made out of high-grade silver. 
They couldn't use a foreign coin, so they had to exchange their foreign currency for this uh, for the temple coin. And apparently they were charging extravagant rates of exchange. They were ripping off the people. The Gentiles were coming to worship, and they were being exploited. And uh, Mark also mentions the doves, which were offered by the poorest classes of people. There were other animals there, apparently, lambs, cattle to be sacrificed, but only the very wealthy could afford uh, these larger animals. The poor sacrificed the doves. And uh, though in theory any dove brought to the temple could be worshipped, uh, could be used in worship if it was without blemish, in practice the priests of that day excluded any doves brought in from the outside. You had to buy them within the temple court, uh, the court of the Gentiles, and the price was four or five times higher than the price outside the wall. So that, again, they were exploiting people. They were robbing them. That's why Jesus says, You're, my house is intended to be a house of prayer. He quotes Isaiah 56. And the point that Isaiah is making in that, in that statement is that God's house is intended to be a place where all the world can gather to be helped. The quotation actually says, um, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. So Gentiles from all over the Roman Empire could come and offer sacrifices and they could pray and they could be taught by the priests and they could be ministered to. That was, that was the purpose for which the temple was established. But uh, instead of being helped and served, they were being robbed. And that's what Jesus means by this quotation. My house is supposed to be a place of healing, but you're using it to rob others. And so Jesus drove them out of the temple. This is a baffling sort of thing. It seems, uh, doesn't seem in keeping with the Lord's entry into Jerusalem, where he comes in such a quiet manner. Now he, he uses violence to drive the people out of the temple. But, uh, you know, it's not wrong to be angry. There are occasions in life when we ought to be outraged. If we don't get angry, something's wrong with us. As a matter of fact, Paul puts it in, in, in the form of a command. Be angry, he says, but don't sin. In other words, there is a righteous anger. There is an anger when other, that's right when other people's rights are being taken away, when others are being defrauded, when others are being hurt. You can always tell when it's uh, personal injury because it becomes resentment. And we, uh, we stay angry. That's what he means, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But when we see others uh, being used and manipulated and exploited, there is a, a righteous outrage that, that flares up in us, and it's right. And that's what possessed the Lord. And he overturned their tables, and he drove them out. And Mark tells us that he stopped them from carrying utensils through the, through the temple. In other words, he shut down their worship service. He would not permit them to carry on worship in the, in the temple. But that isn't all he did. He began to heal them. Matthew says that the lame and the blind were brought, and he healed them. In other words, he restored again the function of, of the temple. It was to be a place from which river of rivers of blessing and salvation went out to all people. And he again gave the temple its proper place. Where men without hope, men and women without hope and without God, could come and find help, have their hurts healed. He did that for them. But uh, again, a sour note is sounded. The healing is short-lived. 
Because in verse 15 we read that when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, the healing of persons there in, in the temple, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant. The children emulating their, uh, their elders who were shouting, Hosanna, save now, to the Lord began to chant the same uh, phrase. And they were running through the temple area, shouting and leaping and dancing and, and singing, and joy possessed this crowd. And it was, a, it was a great moment in the history of Israel. The temple had become what it was intended to be. 400 years before, Haggai had said that he would fill this house with glory. Haggai was another of these post-exilic prophets who ministered to the exiles when they returned from Babylon. And they, they built the temple, tried to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And it turned out to be a, a, a poor, very insignificant, inconsequential building, something they threw up on the blackened foundations of the ruins of the old temple with what stones they could find. And those that had seen Solomon's temple broke down and wept. But uh, Haggai says, don't, uh, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise this little structure because I'm going to fill this house with glory. And he wasn't thinking about the efforts that uh, Herod made to embellish that little temple. He was thinking about the Lord's coming. And that the Lord, when he came to his house, would fill it with glory that is worth. It would again have the worth that God intends it to have. The temple would be a place where people were ministered to and helped. And that was happening. But these long-faced clergy with their long robes come out on the porch. And they look over the whole scene. And they're disturbed because the children are destroying the dignity of the house of worship. You don't do this in the house of God. You don't run through the court. Shut those children up. Get them out of here. And they shut the whole thing down. And the people begin to wander away. And the Lord says to them, haven't, haven't you ever read the Scriptures? Quite a statement to make to some of the best-read people in the history of the world. Haven't you ever read the Scriptures? That Back in, in, in the Psalms, in Psalm 8, God ordained that children should praise God. You've missed the whole point of the Scriptures. And uh, then the Lord turned on his heels, and he walked away. They had shut the whole thing down. God's house was to be a place where there was healing and the Lord did that for them and now the process stops. Back uh, when I was in college in Texas, a friend of mine and I uh, became concerned about a little country high school in Duncanville, Texas. Duncanville's a little cow town just a few miles southwest of, of Dallas and there's a high school there that has about 100 kids in it. At least they did at that time. And uh, there was no Christian witness, whatever, in that high school, nothing going on. And uh, this friend of mine, Richard Ayers, and I decided that we would start a Young Life Club there in that school. And uh, we just started hanging around the high school, and uh, Richard had played football in high school and college, and so he helped the coaches, and, and we just got to know kids, started uh, spending time with them, building relationships and friendships, and as Young Life says, winning the right to, to be heard. These were just really pagan kids. They had no, no real interest and in, outward interest in spiritual things and weren't going to church any place. And uh, finally we started a little cornball club in a farmhouse near the, near the town. A family there had a big white frame farmhouse. I can still see it with a big barn out in back. And, and we used to gather there every Tuesday night 
And because there was absolutely nothing to do in that little town, the kids just came in droves. Well, I think almost every kid in the high school at one time or another was in that, that Young Life Club. And uh, we just uh, sang up a storm and had a lot of fun and, and shared the gospel with them. And, and little by little, kids started meeting the Lord, and we sent a bunch of them off to Star Ranch and uh, or Silver Cliff, and a bunch more of them met the Lord, and they came back. And, and that school began to change. But... Uh, we began to get a lot of opposition, a lot of opposition. But, you know, the thing that struck me is that the opposition didn't come from the local bar. local bar had nothing, really, they had nothing but good things to say about what were happening to the kids, and it didn't come from the school. school was excited. It came from the local churches. The clergy shut us down. They absolutely did. They shut us down. They snuffed us out, and we had to leave. And that's the sort of thing that Jesus is seeing here. God's people ought to form a place where there can be healing and help. But very often, we're the ones who, because we're so preoccupied with minutia, getting everything right, we turn people away. And that's sad. That's really tragic. Now, I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is, what would the Lord say to us if he rode his little donkey down Fairview and turned left on cold and tied it out here on a post? Although I think today he'd probably be driving a 1949 Volkswagen Beetle to come with a little window in the back, you know, the fenders all bashed in. And he'd walk in the back and uh, he'd take a look at us. Now, you realize, of course, that the counterpart of the church, of the temple, is not this building. It's us. It's the people of God. We're the temple. And whether we're gathered here or we're scattered all across Boise, we're the temple. And uh, I have to ask myself, what would the Lord start throwing out of my life in terms of attitudes toward people? Here's a world out there that's bleeding from a thousand wounds, hurting. And, and what's my attitude toward people there? Am I turned off because they're different from I? Different national background, different educational background, dress differently, have a different lifestyle. They do things I don't do. They, they, they're into moral uh, problems that I don't have. What's my, what's my attitude toward them? Am I willing to love them and help them heal their hurts by introducing them to the one who can heal, or am I, am I turning them away? See, he's the one who gives help. You, you don't have to know an awful lot about the Lord to find help. Uh, you don't have to even know much of the gospel to know that he's the one that can give help. As C.S. Lewis puts it, down through the ages when men have lacked wisdom, they might cry out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happens. Or they may cry out, Billy Bud, help me, if they need courage, and nothing much happens. But he says, down through the ages, whenever men have been in deep and desperate need and they have cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something has happened. Something very real has happened. And the Lord has begun from that point to take them on to maturity and that relationship to him. Now the question is, are we willing to set aside all of our prejudices and set aside the barriers and the hindrances that keep us from people in order to introduce others to the one who gives help, this quiet, unassuming king who can do it all, who does wonderful things? Or are we hanging up on some trivial thing that keeps us from being helpful? Uh, for example, how do you feel about the person down the street that's going to vote for Mr. Church next November? Now, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you how I vote. I'm going to vote, and I've made up my mind. But... Uh, you know, and, and we all need to make up our minds how we're going to vote. But quite frankly, 
Who wins the election in November is not a cosmic issue. In terms of an eternal perspective, it's really not going to make that much difference. It's important, but it's not that important. What really matters is the salvation of people. And I guess my question, you know, sometimes we can let things that don't matter create barriers that keep us from introducing people to the one who can give the kind of help they really need. Really, I don't care who you vote for, either Frank Church or Steve Sims, neither of those men are the men who ultimately are going to solve the problem that humanity has to face. They're not. They may both be good men, or they may not be. That's up to you to decide. But they're not going to solve the problem that men have to face. The Lord will. They may give some help, but they can't give any ultimate help. And therefore, I must not turn off on the people in my block who don't vote the way I do, or who have a different worldview, or who have practices that I don't have. You see, they do things that I, as a Christian, don't do. I can't do that. I need to ask the Lord, we all do, to give us the tongue, as Isaiah puts it, the tongue of the learned, that we might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. There are people out there that are really hurting, really hurting. And the more you get involved with your neighbors, you begin to discover how much they are hurting. And we have the one that can give help. And we need to offer that help. And I'll tell you a story that's really happened. Some of the recipients of it are seated right here this morning. About three weeks ago, a lady called me. I don't even know her. I'd never heard of her before. She doesn't go to this church. She called and she said, I understand that you know a lady who's really having a hard time. She has some real tragedy in her life. And uh, she, uh, can I help? I've gone through the same experience. I'd like to help. And I said, boy, I think she would really appreciate that. Why don't you just go over and tell her what the Lord has done for you in, in this set of circumstances? And uh, apparently for three or four weeks she uh, delayed because she was a little bit afraid. But finally, last Tuesday, she went over to this house, this woman's house, shared her experiences with her, spent six hours, I understand, talking to her, and led both her and her husband to the Lord. Now, um, you see, you don't need a theological degree to do that sort of thing. You just need to be available. That's all. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. And where am I putting roadblocks in people's paths? Where am I acting like the churchmen of, of Jesus' day, the clergy then, who were actually thwarting God's plan to bring salvation to the earth? And where am I implementing God's plan to bring salvation? We need to sit in judgment on ourselves. Now, the story goes on, and it's a baffling account. seems out of character with the Lord's dealings with with people. In verse 18, Now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And everything you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Now, that doesn't sound like the Lord, particularly the one who just came into Jerusalem on a donkey, and now he loses his temper at a poor fig tree that uh, doesn't have any figs, and he curses the fig tree, and the thing withers up. He had a temper tantrum. It's childish. But, no, we know that's not so. That's not the way our Lord deals with people or things. Now, this was an illustration for the disciples. You'll notice they're the ones that were with the Lord on this occasion. 
And as we've seen in Matthew, as he moved down toward the uh, end of his earthly life, his incarnated life, uh, he was spending more and more of his time training the disciples, and that's what he's doing here. The Lord knew very well there are no fig trees on that fig tree because there are no figs on fig trees in April. Anybody knows that. They come late in the year. And uh, the other gospel writers make that very clear, that, that it wasn't the time for figs. But the Lord wanted to use this to teach. The Lord was hungry, just like the people were, they were coming to the temple. And he went to the fig tree, just as people were coming to the temple. And there was nothing there, just as there was nothing in the temple. Because the fig tree represented Israel. And Israel's place in God's scheme of things to bring salvation to the world. And God and the Lord saw when he saw Israel that they were dead and, and they were dying and almost dead and failing to fulfill their place in God's program, just as that fig tree was already starting to die. And all he did was accelerate the process. He just commanded it to be withered and it withered up and it would have only been a matter of months before it withered up anyway. It was already dying. And the disciples say, wow, what's going on? And Jesus says, well, you can do the same thing if you just have faith. Now, he doesn't mean that the disciples were to go all over Palestine practicing by withering up trees or moving mountains. That's not the point. He knows that the disciples within weeks will be facing opposition. This was on Sunday. On Friday, this is on Monday. On Friday, Jesus was crucified. And from that point on, the disciples began to catch a lot of grief. They were opposed by the religious establishment. They were opposed by the fig tree. And Jesus' point is this. When you meet opposition, meet it with faith. God will take care of the fig tree. He'll take care of the opposition. He'll take care of the clergy. He'll take care of every problem that you encounter. You just go about feeding people. That's all. Don't concentrate on the negatives. Concentrate on the positive. Don't have a negative ministry. Have a positive ministry. Whatever you ask, God will do. He'll take care of any opposition you face. You just get about the business of feeding hungry people. And that's what he's saying to us today. Where are the hungry people in your life? The people that you run into day after day that long for food. As Isaiah puts it, God has given us the tongue of the learned that we might know how to speak a word in season to him and his weary. Let's pray. Gracious Father, it's so good to know that we have some purpose in this life other than serving ourselves. We've all experienced the emptiness of that approach to things, just living to make more money or to acquire more possessions or to make it to the top of our corporation. And uh, we've seen how, how empty that is, how unsatisfying. Thank you for reminding us that there are greater things at stake in this world than our own comfort and ease. Help us to see that we're here to be servants, to bring healing and help wherever help is needed. Help us to be sensitive to the needs of people around us and to love people just like they are. Not expect them to measure up to our standards before we'll accept them or receive them or give them what they want. But um, to be sources of blessing, to be springs from which living water flows, to assuage the thirst and the hunger that people have. Thank you that you're the one who makes that possible. In Jesus' name, amen.